Unfound is brought to you by its supporters at Patreon, PayPal, and YouTube, along with its gracious advertisers. Judith Ann Brown was a 19-year-old from New York City, New York. She was a friendly, popular girl who was a psych major. In mid-April 1977, Judy seemingly took off with a man she met while they were in a mental health facility together. She was never seen again. But he might have been. I'm Ed Denzel, and this is Unfound. I've been talking for a while about a particular type of disappearance that Unfound has not yet covered. And I think the reason I've mentioned it so often is because I've been really, really ready to cover one. What is it? Somebody who is really bad who is on the run from the law. To be sure, I'm not talking about Judith, but more on that in a moment. Sure, we've discussed some people who were evading the law when they disappeared. Some of those disappearances are Brennan Smokey, Crystal Bailey, and very recently Matthew Braswell, and a bunch of others who, had they been found, they would have gone straight to jail. Sure, they were felons, but I'm not so sure how scary any of them were. Whereas the kind of disappearance I've been longing to cover would be one of a hardcore criminal who did something really, really horrible. Well, with the disappearance of Judy Brown, she is not that person. In fact, Judy was the exact opposite. Yet, yep, she really did it. She dared to escape with a killer. And, now a summary of the case. Neither of these disappearances is on my friend Megan Lyndez's website, charlieproject.org, but Judy's is on NamUs. Judy Brown grew up in a large family in New York City, and this was the plan, to always live there. However, things changed in seconds when Judy's father got hit by a car while walking. Once he became well, Judy's parents and siblings, all except Judy, moved to Kansas because she wanted to stay in the Big Apple. However, this started a downward spiral for Judy in which she eventually had to be admitted to a mental health facility in the mid-1970s. However, at the time of her disappearance, Judy was enrolled in college classes and had met a man, Richard, and they got engaged. So, in mid-April 1977, Judy had gone to visit a couple of other family members still in New York City. Yet, after this, Judy could not be found at the facility where she was supposed to be every night to fulfill an agreement there. When Judy did not show up by the end of April 1977, management threw her stuff out. 
Yet, by this time, somehow Judy's family discovered that she had already taken off with Richard, who was also AWOL, from the facility where he was supposed to check in every night. The two were never seen again. Only then did Judy's family find out who Richard actually was and how dangerous he could be. Although Judy is the main person for this episode, Richard's history and subsequent events might be a better avenue of investigation for trying to figure out what happened to both of them. See if you agree as you try to answer these three questions during the interview. Number one, was Judy abducted or did she go willingly, maybe even planning this herself? Number two, since Judy has not been heard from since April 1977, is Richard harming her the most likely scenario? And number three, did Richard really call his lawyer around the year of 1995, or was it a scammer, or is the lawyer making it all up? Judy's family's theories center on the fact that she disappeared with a murderer. The guest for this episode is Judy's cousin, Julian Quiterio. Unfound news. In not quite two weeks, March 30th, that's a Thursday, at 7 p.m. Eastern, I will be appearing live with Dr. Telesco again on her show on the Fischler College of Education and School of Criminal Justice YouTube channel. We'll be discussing a disappearance in which the solution was only one mile from the Nova Southeastern campus. Next, I continue to work on my upcoming teachable course, How to Podcast Better Than Anyone. Please start looking for ads and notices as to when it will be available. Finally, Dad is here. He's 86 years old, and he drove the whole way from Pennsylvania. How long will he be here? I don't know. I'm so happy to have on this episode of Unfound, the cousin of Judy Brown, Julian Quiterio. Julian, welcome to Unfound. Thanks, Ned. Thank you for having me on. Let's start here. Of course, uh, there are two people missing in this disappearance, but you are only a relative of one of them, and we certainly want to make sure that we concentrate on Judy in this disappearance, but we're going to have to talk about Richard, too. But let's talk about you first. Tell the listeners a little bit about yourself, uh, you know, maybe the kind of work that you do, um, things like that. What do the people, the audience need to know about Julian Quaterio? Sure. Uh, I'm from New York City. I was, I became a private investigator in 2012, and I only worked in the private um, you know, sector for like a year. And then I went over to uh, public defenders and I have been a public defense investigator for the last 10 years. Wow. So I've been investigating for, in, in, in New York City for about 11 years now. You know, I'm not law enforcement. Um, mm-hmm. But, you know, I've just been working on, like, a, over time, I've worked in a lot of different types, types of cases. And, you know, but never anything like this. Mm-hmm. I guess I could say, because we don't really do <laughs> these kind of cases. Right. Sure. So you are licensed in the state of New York? No, uh, no, in New York State, you don't have to be licensed to be an investigator. Okay, to doing what you're doing. So you work for a public defender's office 
in New York City for what uh, what what county, if you can say? Oh, uh, Brooklyn. Brooklyn. You from uh, Brooklyn? Very good. Thank you. Okay. Uh, maybe uh, we we need to go back a little farther than that. What um, what got you into that, Julian? It's really strange, you know. I just I went to I went to college. I thought I knew what I wanted to do. I ended up having like changed my major three times, and none of it was ever criminal justice. And when I started at the private uh, the PI firm in, in Queens, I just I just took to it. I just really liked the work, mm -hmm. and and I had never done anything like it before. And at the time. I really didn't know what career path I had wanted to go down, and, and I just stumbled upon this. And this is, you know, this is many years after I graduated. Right, right. Uh, yeah, so, you know, like, you know, hindsight's twenty twenty. I, I kind of wish I could go back and do all criminal justice. Yeah, um, <laughs> me too. Right. Um, but I just, I really enjoyed it. And then once I moved on to, you know, investigations that were for the city, you know, mm -hmm. like, uh, you know, misdemeanors, felonies, and stuff like that. I just, I really just liked all the aspects of it in terms of, you know, interviewing witnesses, um, getting statements, taking photos, and getting video video of different crime scenes, and stuff like that. So, yeah. you know, I just, I, I really enjoyed it. I stayed with it, uh, uh, you, know, you know, still to this day, you know, mm -hmm. and, and then, I don't know, and then, yeah, and then I also kind of started doing some of this, uh, I guess, missing person stuff on the side, uh, on the side, mm -hmm. uh, I kind of fell into it. Okay, very good. Now, maybe I should ask you, what were you doing before you started into this investigation stuff? And I, I ask you this, if you don't know, I have a very diverse background, I've been a car salesman, I was a printer and fax machine technician, I was a stage manager for some uh, Vegas shows. I mean, I have a very, very diverse background that, you know, really has nothing to do with me doing this podcast for the six and a half years. Maybe you can, do you have such a diverse occupational background as well before you got into investigating? Uh, yeah. yeah, I mean, when I was in college, I, 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 I studied archaeology, so I was very, I just, I was very set on, you know, just becoming a professor, doing archaeology, um, and I, I loved it, but, you know, I guess when I think about it now, it's like, you know, trying to put together the pieces and mysteries of the ancient world that's versus right. the modern world. That's right. That's you know? Man, that's a great way to put it. Yeah. And, you know, and uh, it was um, it was in the anthropology department, and but as soon as I was starting to, like, graduate and leave school, I just realized that my, my major... The, the lifestyle I would have had as an archaeologist was not what I wanted. Mm. You know, I, I loved the profession, but I didn't, like, love mm. the kind of work that I would be, right. I want to say forced to do, but the lifestyle I would be forced to have, yeah. you know. So I, I wanted something more that would keep me here, like, in the States, you know, and yeah. maybe in New York, you know, and I could work here and, and you know, be here. Right. Uh, Right. Yeah, we all had visions of being Indiana Jones at one time or another, Julian, I suppose, right? Yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> I mean, I have, I have been on the date before, oh, and that was, that was amazing. Uh -huh. um, 
But um, I, and then after that, I had worked in the mobile industry for about five years. Uh, I worked for Sprint and AT&T. Okay. And, and so I got used to kind of, uh, it was around the 2006 period of time, you know, so it was like right when the first iPhones were coming out. And, yeah. you know, so I, I got very familiar with technology as well. I mean, so I'm very comfortable with tech now when I have to use it for my investigations, you know, videos and all those kind of things, you know. Sure. Okay. Let's move on to this. How are you related to Judy Brown? My, my mother is Judy's first cousin. Okay. Uh, they, they grew up together, like, you know, different parts of New York. Um, so I'm her, technically I'm her cousin once removed, but in, in mm. my family, like we're just cousins. Yeah. Like just, I, I grew up knowing her oldest sister, you know, and I was a child, you know, and her sister's, you know, a little bit older, much older than me. Right. So, uh, yeah, she knew me since I was a baby and she was always, she was always, you know, my cousin, you know, and all her siblings as well. It's just a lot of. Aside from that, that one sister, um, you know, all of the rest of the Ju Judy siblings, you know, she was one of eight. Mm. Uh, they all lived in different parts of the, of the country. So there's some of them I had, had not seen for 20, 25 years, maybe more. Mm -hmm. Okay. You know, so that, that was an interesting family dynamic, you know, is that I, I would see one cousin, like, mm. very, you know, as family functions, and, and the other ones, like, some of them, one or two of them I've never even met. Right, right. Big family. Okay, so that is how you were related. And um, we're going to get uh, into how you got off course. We already know that your everyday job is investigating, helping a public defender's office. But we'll get, you know, get back to how you first started getting into Judy's uh, disappearance here a little later. Once we go talk a little bit about her and the circumstances and everything else, so we'll bring kind of bring it up to the 21st century and when you decided you were going to do this. So let's move on to this. Of course, you did not know Judy one on one, but what have um, you know people told you about her? Being that many of your older family members did know her, you've spoken to uh, some of them, your mother, etc. Um, what did they say just about Judy in general? Personality, you know, things like that. What you know, what did you, what was she doing with her life in like the early seventies? What would they say about her? Popular, introverted, things like that. Judy was very, very straight-laced, I, I would call it. She had her own social circles growing up, and she was she was social, but I would call her an extrovert, you know. Mm -hmm. uh, she was more of a quiet type that had a good number of friends, mm -hmm. you know. And she used to do things and, and hang out and hang out with other kids in the, in the neighborhood, depending on like, what neighborhood she lived in. I mean, she lived in the Bronx for a while. She lived in Queens for a while. And... So, uh, I, I hate to make it sound so regular, but, you know, she, she was just, I, I feel like a, a, a typical, you know, kid that wasn't into anything that was, uh, I, I don't know, like, mm -hmm. she, she just, like, like I said, she just went to school, she got pretty good grades, she was, she was quiet, she hung out with her friends, she never got in trouble with the police or anything like that, um, you know, I mean, she didn't... Yeah, she didn't even smoke mm. cigarettes. <laughs> All right, so pretty straight-laced, I guess. Nothing that in her um, behavior would have uh, ever led anybody to believe that she would go missing and still be missing all these years later, I guess was what you're saying. Yeah, 
yeah, I mean, you know, there were aspects of her as she started to grow up and her family situation that I think shaped her slowly into, you know, uh, the, the teenager and young woman that she became. I mean, it, it's actually, when, when I thought about it, it's a little strange to, to try to, you know, to describe somebody who we only know of up until 19 years old. You right, know I mean? that's true. Uh, that's true. And, you know, Great you know, point. I mean, and she, you know, she had graduated high school in uh, June of 75. Mm-hmm. You know, and then mm-hmm. roughly about two years later, she, you know. She, she goes she, missing. At the, the, she goes missing. Right, and I don't, you know, it's none of my business how old you are, Julian, but certainly the person I was at 19 uh, is different than the person I was at, I am at 52, and certainly even different than the person I was at 30. So yes, we're, you know, we're just, we have to remember she was just 19 when she went missing, and, you know, we have to just remember that. Not a full-fledged adult yet, you know, with, uh, you know, making a lot of, you know, big decisions in her life. That's a very good point, but everybody uh, seemed to like Judy, I guess is what you're saying. Yeah, um, I mean, there, there are some, you know, um, personal circumstances of hers that, you know, if you want me to get into. Yeah, we'll, get, in, we'll get into I, that I, in a I, moment. I, yeah, we'll get into that in a moment. But I'm just saying okay. that she's just a good person. Yeah, um, you know, she, nobody really had, it, really had an issue with her. And mm-hmm. she, I, I actually don't think, I don't think she had a boyfriend um, before. Um, before she disappeared, you know. Um, okay. Um, except for Richard. <laughs> except for Richard, who yeah, we're going to talk about. Yeah. Later. Okay. Gotcha. Now, I do have to ask you about this, though. It sounds to me like most of your family, even to this day, is centered there in New York City. We know how it's the largest city in the United States. But what was it, your understanding? Once again, if you don't know, but if you know, I think this is, uh, you know, could play a role in this disappearance. Why was it that some of her family, you know, specifically connected to her, moved to Kansas? What, do you any insight into that? And when did that happen? Yeah, it's, you know, it, it, it's, a, it's, a, it's a little bit of a sad story. You know, my, her father, uh, you know, my great uncle, he, he was a, he hit by a drunk driver as a pedestrian. Wow. Uh, one night. And it was a very awful accident. I guess he was thrown into a tree, like after the car hit him. Yeah. And he had a very intense traumatic brain injury, and he wasn't able to work, and he was disabled after that, and that really affected their ability to, I guess, financially remain stable, you know. And since you know she was she was one of eight, you know, they mm. had a lot of, I guess, a lot of mouths. Mm, you know, for sure. Yeah. Expenses. and I think it just. After they they hung out they hung on for I mean because I think that happened to him in '65, and so they hung on for a number of years as long as they could. But then in what changed in '75 is that I believe his father passed away and uh, mm. left him a farm in Kansas, hmm. and and they were they, they just I think they just said to themselves you know what this is a lot more feasible than the kind of life that we're living here in New York, like, you know, yeah. struggling to, you know, I, I think a lot of people uh, here in New York like, could identify with that, you know, either, yeah. you know, you're either struggling, you know, paycheck to paycheck, right. or great, you know. Or you're, or you're living in an apartment overlooking Central Park, one of the two, right? Yeah, yeah, and my, you know, her family was the former, mm-hmm. and so I guess they, they, they just wanted to 
you know, try, I guess, try to go with what made sense, you know, uh, since they had that, that property and you know, nobody was going to be living on it, so they moved, they moved up to Kansas. So uh, why didn't uh, your understanding, once again, I realize you were not there at the time, what is your understanding why Judith didn't go with them? Oh, well, I think it would be the same reason why anybody would want. I mean, I mean she, she, you know, they were going to Coldwater, Kansas, and when mm -hmm. I looked it up, and uh, it's, it's an extremely rural place. It's not just like mm -hmm. a little bit rural. I mean, it's, it's, it's very different from the lifestyle that she, she grew up with. Okay. So, you know, that was one of the major factors, just kind of, you know, kind of, kind of like, you know what, that's just not what I, what she wanted. Mm -hmm. And then at, at the same time, because her mother was working and, and her father couldn't, she was, do, I think she was doing a lot of childcare for her younger siblings. Yeah. Uh, Cause she was, she was the, out of the eight, she was the third, third child. And then there were five younger than her. Yeah. So she was helping with, with five various children and, and me being, I'm, I'm one of four and I'm the oldest. Mm -hmm. So I understand the frustration of having three younger siblings <laughs> and having to be babysitter sometimes. Yes. You know, you're like, um, you know, free, free labor. <laughs> right. Uh, yeah, you're right. No, Julian, you got it right. You're right. And so maybe it's, so I guess what you're saying here is they're moving to Kansas and Judith maybe thought, you know, this is my chance to get out from being a parent. You know, I can have my own life now, and they'll have you know they'll have to take care of my younger siblings, not me. Yeah, and possible. She wanted to go. To, she she wanted to go to college, and she had already enrolled by the mm. time they were moving. So I don't think she wanted to change that either. You know, she, sure. She was, she was undergrad for psychology, and right. and she had she had um, actually I had some a bunch of letters that she wrote back back in the time of the seventies. Mm. And she says, you know, I, I'm taking psychology because I, I want to be able to address some of my mental health issues and understand myself better, you know. Right. And, um, right. So she would, yeah, so she, so, you know, she also wanted, I think, to be closer to what New York's resources had available to her, like if she needed, you know, um, therapists or psychiatrists to be able to help yeah. her with whatever a mental health uh, issue she may have been struggling with. Right. We're gonna, and we're going to get into that in a moment. I guess what we're also saying is, you know, your average 19-year-old, would they rather, even in the 21st century, would the average 19-year-old live out in the middle of nowhere, Kansas? I have nothing against people. I grew up in the country in Pennsylvania, and it was perfectly fine. But given the choice between out in the nowhere, in the middle of nowhere in Kansas, or in New York City, especially if you grew up there, I think most children would pick New York City. Right. Yeah. Not an unusual I, choice. I, I think going from one extreme to the other for either side is just very intimidating. Yeah. You know? You're right. Because uh, I know plenty of people who are like, I'm out here in the, in the quietness and I mm. never live in the city. Yes. Like, hey, that's cool. <laughs> that's right. That's right. Okay. So you've talked about, let's move on to this, being that you've brought it up, that, that sets this up very nicely. Uh, her mental health. Uh, you know, what was going on with her once again? I, I you, uh, as best as you can tell, you were not there. What have other people told you? What is your understanding is the kind of issues that she was having? And I just have in the outline, was she depressed, suicidal, delusional, bipolar? What was going on with her in the early seventies? Um, after, you know, after her family dynamic changed and her father's accident, 
you know, um, she, I, I, you know, I think on one hand, it, it, it was very hard for any anybody to see their family member that they're living with, like, you know, so yeah. dramatically changed after such an accident. Yeah. You know, not only was he, you know, I guess, uh, men, you know, mentally changed because he had uh, a traumatic brain injury, but he was also, like, kind of, he was disfigured in a way. Yeah. And so he probably looked very different. Um, he, I mean, he's lucky that he was even alive, you know. Right. And, and so I think that impacted her a lot. Um, and, you know, she, start, she started to slowly exhibit, like, signs of depression. Um, and, you know, and, and just some, I guess, you know, some other behaviors that, that, that people would think would fall. In. I mean, I'm not a doctor, so I can't mm-hmm. diagnose her, but fall into certain, like, you know, um, mental health. Like, she had, she did struggle, I think, with anorexia, I've been told. Okay. And... And, and then the depression and, you know, and, and with depression, um, you know, I know from personal experience, uh, it, it comes anxiety, you know, there's like an sure. anxiety portion to it. Yep. And so I think she just was having a hard time managing that. And then, and then after her two older siblings moved out and, you know, went on to do whatever they were doing with their lives and a lot of those responsibilities were falling on her. Like yeah. that, that fam, family pressure combined with what she was struggling with already was just starting to, like, you know, chip away. I think chip away at her, you know, in right. some way. Like the, it just the, like the stressors that she had were right. seemed to be pretty intense for her, you know. Did so? Did she end up admitting herself? And this is where Richard's going to come into this eventually. But did she admit herself to a hospital or? Did somebody admit her, you know, saying, hey, Judith, I think we got to do this. What is your understanding? Well, the first time she was admitted um, to a hospital was after her family was already in Kansas in 76. Hmm. She was in college, you know, in one of her psych classes. And I don't, I don't know how, nobody knows how, but she had some sort of panic attack or breakdown in class. And one of one of my aunts went to go to the school to, they called her, you know, um, she was the emergency number. So she went to the school, you know, to see what was going on. And, you know, my, my aunt is a nurse, was a nurse. And so she said, well, you know, let's take you to a hospital. And Judy was, was, was willing. Like, it wasn't like anybody had to take, like, convince her or drag her to a hospital. You know, so she, one of the professors was really nice and, and offered to drive them to the nearest hospital and you know they were having at the time they were having trouble figuring out where to go you know uh, like this is how it kind of plays into the story the first hospital they go to there's a hospital strike the second hospital they get to is is Creedmoor psychiatric facility Mm -hmm. and since my was a nurse she knew the reputations of all these hospitals in the area and she said to Judy no like don't don't check yourself into there. Like, let's just go on to the next hospital, uh, which was Hillside, and let's have to be checked in there. But the, the problem is none of them knew the direct the, the directions. Uh, this just goes to show you the difference between then and now. Mm-hmm. So the, the, <laughs> right. the, the professor was getting kind of tired, you know, and he was just like, listen, like, I don't really want to be driving around, so can we just, like, leave her here? And, 
and Judy was like, you know, what, I'm just, it's okay. I'm just gonna, I'm just gonna stay here. You know, so she checked her in, herself into Creedmoor um, on August third of nineteen seventy six. Okay, and how did things get? Your understanding, how did things go there? Did she uh, work herself out of it, or what happened? What happened is immediately, um, the cousin had that had taken her, you know, to the hospital with the professor. Went home and you know told her parents of the state because Judy was staying with my side of the family at the time. Um, you know, my her aunt and uncle, um, you know, my grandmother and grandfather. <laughs> mm-hmm. You know, uh, so Judy was staying with her aunt and uncle while her family had moved away. You know, and you know all of like my mom and all of her siblings lived in the house as well, and. So my grandmother, grandfather went to Creedmoor, maybe the fourth or the fifth, to pick her up and transfer her to the other hospital that they wanted to put her in originally, because um, they just thought it was a better a better fit for her. So she was only really in the, the, that Creedmoor facility for about twenty four to forty eight hours. That's it. It wasn't, yeah, it, was, it wasn't long at all. And then she was a voluntary inpatient at Hillside after that for like three or four months. Okay. All right. So she goes to Creedmoor first, and then she goes to this, I guess, place that was perceived to be better later. And so, how, and once again, was this a situation where she was actually, you know, um, was she actually getting better? Was she getting help? Or did this seem like something that was, uh, you know, persistent? What do you think? You know, she was writing letters to my family at the time while she was... Uh, you know, inpatient. So, and you know, the way the letters sound, you know, she sounds positive and, you know, obviously, you know, um, the, the, the reality of it could be really different, but you know, she, she doesn't sound particularly negative about, about anything. So I think being there did help her address some of her, her issues. I mean, I know that, um, after some point, you know, she was, she was, she was prescribed some medication. I, I don't know what kind, um, you know, and I'm sure that that helped her a bit as well. So it was like a combination of like you know therapy, psychiatry, and mm-hmm. just an opportunity to kind of maybe de-stress from all the all the other pressures that Everything she had. going on, on her life. Okay. Classes. Yeah. Right. So what was then her living situation in uh, 1976 into 1977? Because this is going to play in. To a little bit later because of you know she was my understanding she was under some situation you know that had something to do with the care that she was getting or a hospital that was she was getting what what situation was this well after her parents left she lived with my grandmother for about my grandmother grandfather for about a year until 70 until 76 and then after she had that episode and went into the hospital inpatient and came out of the hospital I want to say December of 76 or like early December okay she she was transferred into an outpatient program at that Hillside Hospital that had that provided housing and you know when I learned this I, I hadn't I've never heard anything like that like you know to this like to this day mm-hmm. so I was very shocked that they you know that they had housing and so a part of their housing agreement was that she would attend my group therapy sessions and still continue with all of 
her her therapy and her medication, and they would they would provide housing for her. Like I, I guess until she decided she wanted to move out, or she could you know um, get get a you know get a job that she that could pay for what she wanted to do. So I, I think the, at that point she the world was open to her, you know, mm-hmm. and and they were just trying to like kind of support that. Like okay, you know, we'll provide you with housing while you're trying to get better, and then afterwards you can decide what you want to do. Right. So this housing was based on the fact that she would continue to get help for uh, the situation that she was in, mental situation that she was in. And if she were, for example, this is just an example, not show up for therapy or stop taking her medication or anything like that, that she would then be booted out of this program for the housing? Yeah. Okay. I don't know, the time, I don't know, I don't know after how long, but that, mm. that, was, that was the agreement. Okay, very good. Thank you. Uh, was she, of course, given the situation, what, uh, as best as you can tell, what was she doing for money at this point? Of course, we know New York City, not a cheap place to live. What was she doing for money at the time? Do you know? I guess the short answer is no. You don't you know. know. Um, okay. I, yeah, I know, that, I know that her family wasn't sending her money because they were still mm. trying to get themselves on, on their feet in Kansas. Um, and... You know, I don't, I don't know how she was getting money, but I, I do know that, you know, she didn't have to worry about pay, paying for housing at the time. Right. They probably did provide her with some meals of some sort. So I, I guess whatever mm-hmm. she wanted, you know, whatever she okay. wants herself to pay for, like she'd have to somehow come up with. But I, I don't, I don't really have any idea. Okay. So we, so, so we might be open to the idea that she was waitressing or something. Something. Yeah, it's, it's possible. Okay. No, no, one has, no one in my family has ever mentioned that she was working uh, mm. when she was outpatient, but um, but it's mm. possible she might have been make, you know, doing uh, like a, some gig on the side that you know, made her some quick money. Okay, thank you. Let's now talk about Richard Riesenberg. We're just going to talk about in general terms. His last name is R-I-E-S-E-N-B-E-R-G. He is still missing. But how did he and Judith originally meet? Uh, I'll call it the perfect storm of bad circumstances. Okay. When Judy, went, when Judy went to Creedmoor on August 3rd of 76, Richard was already checked into that facility. Okay. And sometime between, you know, the time that she checked in, you know, on the 3rd and leaving sometime on the 4th or 5th, mm-hmm. they had already talked enough that that they either became friends or started to kind of become interested in each other in a very short period of, period of time. Mm-hmm. Uh, enough that even though she left to go to another facility for months and months and months, they were able to reconnect after she mm-hmm. after she got back out. Okay. Uh, you know, I'm sure they had access to phones in the hospital that maybe they could call and talk to one another. Yeah. I think he might have, he, I know she was inpatient. She wasn't really allowed to leave. Otherwise, like mm. she, she would be kind of, um, you know, she, she wouldn't be doing, she would be violating her program. So she, mm-hmm. like, she had to stay inpatient and she wanted their help. But, mm-hmm. but Richard, you know, was able to, I think, visit her sometimes. So um, I, that's the only way I, I believe they could have seen each other between, like, August and 
she went targeting out in, in December. Okay. I guess what we're saying here, going back to what you said earlier, and that was a nice setup by you, Julian, is had your family gotten what they wanted to take to the other this other hospital first, Richard and Judith would have never met. No. It would wow. never have met. Wow. Okay. Now, was this to a point, you're, once again, your understanding that she and Richard were like a couple, you know, with this outpatient program, you're probably going to have to explain this. Could they like, if they were a couple, could they go on dates? Did she ever introduce him to anybody, uh, you know, you know, somewhere, anything like that? They, okay. By, the, by December, they definitely were a couple, and I don't know how quickly things moved, because, I, you know, I, I'm assuming that they, they, you know, between August and December, they were able to communicate, you know, somehow, yeah. at the least, because their relationship after, you know, in December starts to kind of, like, escalate very quickly, in, in, a, in a positive way, you know, she, she's really falling in love with him, he's treating her very well, um, mm. you know, what, when you asked me before about you know, money and expenses, yeah. you know, once she got out and she was dating him, I think he might have been able to, like, pay for a lot of, for a lot of her things. Sure. Um, okay. And because the situation he was in, and right. then, uh, and then they had been together, and she went to visit her family uh, one last time in Kansas for Christmas. Okay. And after she came back, she had written a letter to her mother saying that she and Richard were engaged, and that was in wow. January. In January so, of 77. Yeah. Wow, okay. So they meet in this, uh, he's in there, and we'll get into the reasons he was in there. But they meet there, then she gets to this other hospital, they keep in touch, uh, kind of become a couple... And then she goes to meet her family, but when she comes back, uh, soon after that, she writes a letter saying she and uh, Richard, who uh, was older than 19, we'll just leave it at that, um, uh, they are a couple, they are engaged, and the way you understand it, what was your family's response at that time, knowing that Judith was engaged to a guy she met while she was in this Creedmoor hospital who's allegedly was having issues like she was what you know what was your family response to all that do you even know uh, i don't i don't believe judy was was very clear about what that he was in the hospital as well oh i see house. okay okay gotcha um, there are um you know, like i said there were a bunch of letters of her writing to her family at, at the time and how she says she met richard is at a bus stop <laughs> oh okay so, like, alright like, gotcha yeah like kind of near the like, outside of the facility somewhere but mm -hmm. you know I ran I, you know, I ran into this guy out at the bus stop and mm -hmm. and I yeah it just right. it doesn't really work you know in, in that period because you know she was impatient yeah. you know for one or two days and then she moved on you know yeah so what you're so, saying is she did not, it wasn't clear how she met him. She was telling people she met him at the bus stop, and that's not how they met. No. Okay. All right. All right. Then. Okay. I maybe understand that. Of course, she could not know what was maybe what was going to happen later. And maybe that was just a, a little white lie at the time that maybe came back, you know, to haunt her later. 
But um, I have it in my notes there. There is, though, a letter. I think maybe this is the last letter that she wrote before she went missing. Was it from April 4th of 1977? And I have it in my notes, so it must be noteworthy. What did it say? Well, you know, what was this? You know, that's the, the strange part about it is that that, that letter on the 4th was not... It didn't have anything specific about it that mm-hmm. was as even as significant as, oh, I'm engaged now, you know? It seemed to be a very normal, plain letter that had no indication that she had any plans to go anywhere or do anything, Mm. or that anything was really changing, you know? So Mm -hmm. that that letter, in and of itself, was was not very, it it wasn't very, like, useful in terms of saying anything, except that she was just, Mm -hmm. you know, kind of keeping things low-key, even if they might not have been. (laughs) Yeah, okay. Well, maybe I should ask you this then. If there were any letters written, of course, we said early January, she writes a letter saying she and Richard are engaged. We know that she goes missing in April, uh, so that's like at least three months. Were there any other letters between that time talking more about Richard and being engaged, any talk about them getting married sometime in 1977, anything like that? There were letters in between, and at some point, I don't know how or, or, or when, it was more towards like the March-April uh, time of 77, she writes a letter to her mother that that's basically saying, I, I know now that you know that Richard's in the hospital, mm. and, you know, and I didn't tell you because I didn't want you to worry, right. but, um, but trust me, I know what I'm doing, and... I'm confident that things will work out for the best. Okay. You know, and she seemed pretty confident of that, you know, mm-hmm. so at some point, by, either she told, you know, my family or, or someone found out, but mm-hmm. then it became clear, like, that she had met him, met him at the hospital, but, you know, I mean, uh, like, you know, it, from their, from their perspective, if he was having some issues like she was, like, it, I guess... You, right. I guess what we're saying also, just to cut right to this, uh, her family, maybe not even Judith herself, knew the real Richard, possibly, right? My, well, my family never did. Yeah, never no. knew it, and maybe Judith didn't either. No. I, I, I can't, maybe. I, I can't mm. even, I don't know what she knew, you know? Right. Or what he told her. Got it. Okay. Just to make sure, because we're going to get to that in a moment. But in that, just the way you understand it, that last letter from your fourth, was Richard mentioned in it? Yeah. She mentioned, she mentioned him in a couple of letters. Okay. Uh, very, you know, very amicably, you know, like, yeah. you know, like very, you know, positive, sweet letters. You know, oh, Richard's sitting here next to me while I'm writing. He says hello. <laughs> you know, but like nobody had ever met him. Yeah. And... You know, and, and one of her sisters finally met him, like, around early April. And what was strange is I had always thought that, like, oh, maybe they went, like, they went out to eat or something. They went to have lunch, so, you know, because Judy is out patient and Richard could come and go sometimes. And and it turns out that, like, she, she had actually brought her sister to Creekmore to meet him. Hmm there and I, I guess they hung out at the hospital for a couple of hours and I and I thought that was very 
I, I agree with you, Julian. I, I agree with you. And this is coming from a guy who's been single his whole life. Even, you know, that is uh, unique, even though I know nothing about such things personally. I agree with you. Okay, so really, 1977, she's engaged to this Richard Riesenberg. She's getting her therapy. She's living there. Uh, she's writing these letters very, you know, frequently, keeping in touch with her family in Kansas, which every good daughter should do. So when was it in April of late of 1977? How was it first noticed, if you know, that Judith was missing? How did that all come about? That somebody, you know, who was it that finally said, you know, this Judy Brown uh, person, you know, we haven't seen her for a while. You know, what do you know about that, Julian? Well, I know that in terms of the timeline, I've been with other family members, I've been kind of able to figure, refine it more than it originally was. Like, for instance, it says she she disappeared as of the 6th, and I know that's not true. Okay. Um, You know, I'm not blaming anybody. I'm just saying that, like, I I could, I would correct that if I could, but, uh, you know, I've been obviously told I'm not law enforcement, so they would have to do it. Uh, But, you know, I know that on the 4th, that day they stroke that letter, the last letter, she went to go visit a family member of mine in a different hospital for a different reason. Um, you know, because one of my other family members had, had you know, had a, an issue. And, you know, so she, she was in the hospital. So Judy went to visit her there. And then she came back again on the 13th and went to visit well. again uh, my family member in the hospital, you know. And, you know, Naomi says she went missing on the 6th, but on the 13th, she's at the, at the hospital visiting, you know, one of my aunts. Yep. It doesn't, it, doesn't, honestly, doesn't make any sense. does you know? not make any and, sense. I agree with you. And, yeah. and how I was able to figure that out was, you know, I discovered that, you know, some of my family members kept records and diaries of these things, hmm. you know, and, you know, I, you know, I, I don't know how, how much people will use diaries as an evidence, but I mean, I'm sure people don't lie in their own diaries. Like, I don't right. think, you know, right. so it's very, you know, not knowing that a lot of these things had existed over time. Like once I was like, this, you have a diary? Like, you know, I was like, oh my gosh, that's perfect. You know, it was like a, it was like a timeline dream for me. Yeah. And, you know, and so the 13th, she's still around. And then by the 26th, um, you know, one of my aunts is writing in her diary that like Judy's already gone with Richard. It's and it's the twenty sixth. So you less know? than two um, weeks. So she's going there the thirteenth to go and see this family member in the hospital. Then less than two weeks later, somebody's already writing their journal. We think Judy's gone. Yeah. Okay. And and Richard also like it, well, he had some a date a date in the newspaper that. That he that says that when he went missing, so I'm guessing that they they're probably about they're probably the same thing. Probably, yeah. That's the yeah, of course we didn't know it, and we're gonna get to how the people put that all together. But as far as who was it though, that you know, how could this family member even write in her journal in the 26th to even know that she was gone? Did Judy call her and tell her, "Hey, I'm taking off," or do we even know that? No, it's just it just kind of I think it became. Somehow it became common common knowledge. Mm-hmm. I 
I don't know how. Um, mm-hmm. I would say this, that if Judy was not showing up to her housing, you know, again, she might have had a, what is that, a emergency contact, and, and maybe, you know, that, that might have been how my family, you know, was aware of, like, oh, did, did she, she coming back? What's going on? You know, um, that's the only thing I could really think of, because, you know, it, it was hard to communicate back in the right. 70s, and you had something specifically set up, and I think because she was part of a program, she would have those emergency contacts in place. Yeah. So we all, the, going back, and the reason we established early, this early on is because she was living at this place, because she took off, she actually ended up getting kicked out of that place at the end of April of 77, correct? Because she wasn't yeah, fulfilling have, her obligation. Yeah, I, and I actually have a, um, one of the letters that my family member saved from April 28th, like when they officially terminated her housing. Okay, all right, so she just goes missing. She's not throwing up, showing up uh, for whatever she was supposed to be doing to fulfill this obligation to stay there. And she's not there on the 28th, and they essentially just uh, kick her out. Now, some questions for you. Did anybody, that, once again, I know you've been working on this. I know you're going to continue to work on this. But at this point, have you ever been able to see anybody, find anybody who actually saw her leave on any date, April 14th, April 20th, anything? I guess what I'm asking you is any, anybody who we trust, besides Richard, um, anybody who, who says, yeah, I think I was the last person to see Judith. I think law enforcement was able to confirm that she was seen at some point. Mm-hmm. Uh, not, not anybody that I know on my side, but, mm-hmm. but there were confirmations, in, in, I guess, in the newspaper or also... Um, at, the, at the time she was living in those apartments, she had two roommates, you know, so if she, if she went, she went missing and somebody went to go question the roommates, I mean, the roommates could have said the last time they saw her, you know? Yeah. I guess what I'm asking you just as an example, nobody actually saw Richard Riesenberg pull up in a Corvette and she jumped in with him and they took off. Nobody, like, that's an example. Nobody actually saw no. anything like that. Not that I know of. Yeah, not that you've been able to find out. There might be record of it, but I don't. I would. I don't have access. Okay. All right. But I know you've been talking to a lot of people, but you've not run across that yet. No. Okay. Very good. Um, to your knowledge, is any was anybody able to at the time determine if she took anything with her? For example, her clothes. Uh, you know, her purse. Did she like leave everything behind? What is your impression of that? She. She packed. She packed the bag. Um, I don't. It seemed like some some sort of luggage, and she did take a substantial amount of stuff with her. I don't think she took everything, you know, okay. just whatever she thought she could use, um, you know, uh, wherever she was going. And mm-hmm. she did make a final trip, also back to my grandmother's house one last time to check if she had left anything there as well, you know. Mm-hmm. And I think that was on the thirteenth when she went to the hospital. Oh, okay. I, part of that was to check to see if she had anything she wanted to take with her. You know, at that point, you know, because after that, you know, it's a little convenient that a week before she, you know, she goes missing, she comes to the house, she picks up some stuff. Right. You know, and then 
and, you know, and, then, and then she leaves. You know, I agree with you. I, I agree with you. I think that's some good insight. So it very well, I guess what we're saying here is there could have been some sort of plan in place. It wasn't like she just woke up one day and she and Richard decided they were going to take off. There might be signs here, evidence that this was pre-planned even a week in advance. Yes. Okay, very good. All right, and so I'm guessing also, being that we're talking about this, no signs of violence or anything at the place that she was staying. Anything like, anything broken, any, you know, drawers on the floor, anything like that, to your knowledge? Nope. Nope, no foul play that anybody has reported and, and that I've ever heard. Okay. So, like, yeah, everything seemed just, like, okay. indicate some sort of voluntary, like, yeah, and, it's a, and it does sound like it was voluntary, even though she might not have known what she was getting into. All right, let's go now go back to talking about you, Julian. When did you decide in your life, um, you know, to start working on this? What, you know, maybe as a child, when did you first hear that, you know, that you had this cousin who went missing back in the 1970s? Is that even a moment that registers at this point, or does it seem like you just oh, yeah. always know it? What, what can you say? I mean that that's the kind of thing, you know, I always had a pretty a pretty good memory and especially for things like that. And, you know, when I was younger, I think at some point, you know, like whenever you're talking to your family members, like just give you random, you know, um, anecdotes and stories and, and things and you know, sometimes, you know, you're like, Oh, where did that come from? You know, but I I remember in my early teens, you know, my mother had brought it up to me that she had a cousin that was missing. And I, I guess at that age, I was like, what? You know, uh, being naive and 13, 14 years old, something like that, you know, like that happens in real life. Like, you know, yeah, right. Um, and, right. and it happened in our family. And, you know, since I had never met Judy, you know, it, it, you know, it was it was like one of those things that, like, yeah, of course, I I believed her, but I it was just it was so like foreign to me, and I just asked her, you know, like what happened, and and my my mom really didn't know that much, you know, mm-hmm. she just said she decided to leave and she left with some guy and and she never came back, and it's been decades, yeah. and I was like, oh, okay. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, it, it, it kind of stuck in my mind over the years. I mean, I was obviously was not able to do much about it as, you know, 20, 25. But then once I started getting into investigations in my early 30s and I, you know, I started to look at things from that perspective, I, that's when I started to ask people in my family, you know, like, what, where, what's the status of the case right now? And it was, it seemed like it was just kind of, like, unknown. Like, none of the case wasn't reported that, like, nobody could really tell me what was happening. You know, uh, I don't think my family was really being contacted by anybody in law enforcement. So I started to just, you know, like, do some basic research like mm. making phone calls and and, and and talking to the detective that was assigned to her case and just trying to like get an idea of how missing persons investigations work and, and mm. how the detectives are assigned to it and, and all that all that jazz 
Uh, when did that, what, what year would you say that was, Julian? What year? Uh, 2012. Okay. Very good. Because at that point, I had asked um, one of Judy's sisters to send me, like, I guess she had a folder of all, like, of, you know, all the information she had about Judy's disappearance or what she, whatever she, whatever she had, you know, and she mailed it, she sent it to me in the mail. And, and I uh, just, so I just found the pack, uh, the folder the other day. It was like, it was like October of Finding out that you had a uh, cousin that was missing way back in the 1970s, maybe subconsciously, kind of led you to becoming an investigator eventually, even though you went off on all these tangents, like you said, archaeology and other things. Do you think that that was maybe something subconsciously that was pushing you in that direction? I wish I could say yes, but, you know, I, I actually, I didn't even really grow up that interested in true crime or anything like that. I didn't, it didn't really fascinate me at, at all as a kid, and then suddenly, like, you know, as an adult, like, like I, you know, we all changed various ways, but like, I went from like basically like not not really much of it, you know, like I didn't have an opinion to like, like you know, totally just trying to like un, like understand and consume all these different cases and, and just so that I could learn as much as right. I could. If I, and it was really mostly from an investigator's perspective. Like I, it wasn't really as somebody like um. You know, uh, just for the sake of it, like you know, to me they were kind of in a way like case studies that I, I could use to somehow apply my sure. own my own cousin. Sure. Okay. And it was, I will say, every episode of everything I've ever listened to is been helpful in some in some way. Cool. Good. Good. All right. So all right. So you're, you've been doing this, I guess, for over ten years now. But you also have to remember. You do this for your everyday work in New York City, too. Yeah. Right. All right. So you are one of the few people, I think, who have been on here, who have been on Unfound, who is a private citizen, but his main job is actually investigative work, working for a public defender's office. So if 
you know, whatever um, cases you're involved in, you are required to go out and get information who obviously, that obviously is going to maybe help the defense. Yeah. Okay, very, very good. So you're doing this, so that's obviously great on-the-job training. Yeah, and the thing I, that really was different between that and this is that mm. I'm used to collecting things that are, that are still here, you know, yeah. uh, people that I could go to their house and ring their bell, you know, um, videos that are still recorded, right. <laughs> you know, um, yeah. when you go past 77, it's just kind of like, where do I start, uh, you know? I know the feeling. I, I, and a lot of family members, of course, you know, I've, as you know, I've covered disappearances from the 1970s and even older than that. And although these people uh, don't have the experience, investigative uh, experience that you do with everyday uh, work that you do, that they're the same way. You know, you go back to the 1970s, where do you even start? You know, and, what, uh, you know. What amazes me about a, lo- a lot of those families is that they, they basically become their own private investigators. Oh, yeah, they have to, yeah. Nobody like, else is going like, to do it. They learn how to investigate, especially when they're not satisfied with the investigation that they're, they, they may or may not be getting, and maybe they can't afford a private investigator. They become... They, they start doing it themselves, their yeah. family. Yeah. And, you know, I, I always I always find that very, you know, admirable and, and, and amazing. I was, I just, I was just lucky that, that that was the profession that I happened to really, yeah. uh, I really enjoy, you know, like the work. And also it was, it was very, you know, like, like fulfilling work for me. Sure. Like I felt like I, you know, that, that it was impactful. And, you know, so I think it, at some point, you know, once some of my family members had this case, like, sort of in their possession for a long time, like, it just was passed to me, and it was like, well, you're, uh, and I, and I wanted it, you know, I'm, I'm an investigator, like, how, sure. how can I, like, how can I say no? You can't, that's right, you can't. But we'll, uh, we're going to talk a little bit more about uh, more, you know, being that you've been working on this at the end after we recover uh, the cover the rest of this. So we'll come back to talking about you and Judy's family again uh, before we are done with this interview because we now have to move on to this. We've, of course, talked a lot about Judy, uh, what she was going through, 19 years old, uh, having some issues that she thought she needed to get help and it was probably the right thing to do. But we also have talked about this Richard Riesenberg, who she got to know, and I want to start here. Uh, how long did it take, once again, as best as you can tell, going back to the 1970s, how long did it take before somebody put two and two together that Richard and Judith went missing at the same time? Do you have any impressions on that, any insight into that at all? The newspapers say he went missing on the 21st. Uh, it's two different newspapers. I forget which ones. Okay. And you know, originally I had questioned how if they were reporting, you know, accurately because at the yeah. time I yeah, I noticed that old papers have a lot of mistakes. Yeah, they <laughs> do. So I took it with a grain of salt, but then when I matched it up with the diary entries and the different documents I found, it seems to be a, a, a make be a, probably the the date, if not the exact day. That he, you know, decided not to return to his inpatient facility, right. uh, the Creedmoor, and 
you know, and like I said, by the 26th, my family already knew she had run off with him. Mm-hmm. You know, it, it wasn't even, like, at, at the time, it wasn't even like, my family wasn't worried, according to what people have told me, they were, they were mad. Yeah. Like, yeah, they were mad, like, oh, you know, like, they're doing this eloping thing, but she'll be back in a few weeks, you know. That was kind of the mentality, but they were still mad that she would do something like that, you know. So mm. a lot of my family members are really, were really frustrated with her, but they didn't, they didn't know mm. a lot. All right, so but it's st- I guess what we're saying, it's still maybe totally unclear how anybody on the spot knew that these two went missing together. All we know is that uh, Richard's disappearance uh, was noted in the papers, but Judy's was not. It, um, you know, at least at the time. No, you know, I guess what I'm saying is when if she went missing with Richard on April 21st of 1977, it was written as Richard just disappearing on his own. Judy is not mentioned at all. There is one article that, that mentions her. Oh, it does. I, okay. But, yeah, but um, I don't know if that's one of the articles that mentions the date that, that he went mm. missing. Because uh, I, I believe that article was written uh, several, several months later. But it does confirm that he left with, you know, a, a younger girlfriend. Like, she, they didn't even know her name. <laughs> okay. All right. All right. So she's not mentioned, but she, I guess what they're also saying is he didn't take off alone. All right. Now, maybe, of course, uh, as everybody knows, I do quite a bit of marketing out there in Facebook, other places, and setting up episodes before they ever come out. So... For a lot of people, uh, you know, they're already going to know where we're going going here, but a lot of people aren't. But uh, this is your opportunity now, Join. I realize Richard's not part of your family or anything, but um, why don't you tell the listeners uh, who Richard Riesenberg is? Who is he? Let's see. Uh, Richard Riesenberg, at the time, Judy was 19 and they were dating. He was 31. And when she went into Creedmoor, um, he had been in the facility since, uh, uh, she, she went in August of 76 and he would have been there, I would say since early 72. So a couple, he'd been in there for a number of years and he was inpatient, like he was not outpatient whatsoever. And he had been put in that facility because in 19, in January 10th of 1971, uh, he went to work, uh, he worked at JFK airport. And he comes home, and he finds his wife and his son dead in the apartment. And so, you know, he calls police, and they're, they're investigating and all this and that. But, you know, they start to put things together. And, you know, it turns out, you know, he had he had killed them at some point and then went to work. Mm-hmm. And then came back and pretended like it, you know, like it was like a break-in. And, you know... Um, his wife Diane. I mean, he he brutally stabbed her many times, and his son Andrew, who was seventeen months old at the time, uh, he tried to drown him in the bathtub, but that didn't work. So he used the ligature to strangle him, and and he killed him. He killed them both, and soon after he was arrested and brought to a maximum security facility in upstate New York called uh, Mid-Hudson Psychiatric Facility. And until he was waiting to go to, I guess, 
court for it. And I don't know necessarily trial because he had a, like a, I think it was a bench trial when, when a judge <laughs> determined. Yeah, the yeah, just um, the yeah, that's yeah. right. Yeah, um, you know, so there was like a year in between that period. So they moved him to Creedmoor in Queens because this happened in Queens. You know, they he was living in Glen Oaks, Queens, with his with his wife and his son, mm-hmm. and. So that was the jurisdiction. So they, they, they moved him back to Queens to Creedmoor because, you know, uh, that was one of the closest facilities to both the courthouse and the courthouse and everything that he had to do legally. So he, he, that's when he was transferred to Creedmoor and eventually he has a bench trial. Uh, he has, uh, he has an attorney. I don't, you know, I, I, I don't think it was a court-appointed attorney. I think he somehow he paid for it, and I don't know. I don't know how many though. Maybe, probably one, but maybe more. Mm-hmm. I, I, um, I know at least one though. And the judge ruled him, uh, ruled him, I guess, innocent by a way of insanity. You know, like wow. and, yeah. I mean, and. It's, it's it's really shocking, you know, but at the same time, I, I've read lots of things in the 70s that, that have, a, 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 around the country, that, that have like a similar philosophy to psychiatry at the time, you know, um, that there was a lot more insanity pleas going on in, in the 70s specifically, and he was one of them in 72, and then he was in Creedmoor for just four years doing, you know, Mm-hmm. I, I guess doing his doing his thing, um, and there were no. I mean, you know, uh, there were no major issues while he was in, in the facility. Yeah, he did have a couple of like r- random breakdowns, but mm-hmm. the thing that was um, interesting about him is that you know when he had this episode or whatever it was that caused him to kill his wife and son like that. You know, um, I mean, there there are a lot of indicators in his past that. It wasn't just like malice, you know. Mm-hmm. There was something psychological going on there that was not. He was not well, you know. Right, hadn't you told me that? Uh, I have it in here in my notes that did he try to commit suicide as a teenager and he wrote a message and then even after he murdered his wife and child he wrote like the same message, something like that. Yes, that's that's kind of how they put it together that he was. The person that that had murdered them because when he was in his teens, um, he he tried to commit suicide. I want to say like twice, and you know, and, mm. and usually he uh, he was pretty you know violent about it. But um, and he wrote. He, I mean, I don't know if you want me to say this, but <laughs> but he wrote on the mirror. Um, I, I don't. I, I don't. Well, at his home, I think it was like in soap or something or lipstick, like yeah. you know, death uh, to all Jew lovers. You know, wow. and okay. his father, his father was Jewish, and but his mother was not; she was Catholic. You mm. know, so you know he had a lot of Jewish family. You know, uh, on his on his father's side, and so I, I don't know what was going on there in terms of like how he viewed like his, you know, religious mm-hmm. situation, like being, you know, 
like kind kind of having family members on it in different you know denominations, yeah, different religious yeah. faiths, sure. But you know, um, it was something that you would think that doesn't have anything to you know that would have much to do with you know whatever reason he wanted to mm-hmm. commit suicide. Right. Yeah, it doesn't really seem like they go together. Mm-hmm. Um, Mm-hmm. You know, but but he was he was having some problems at home, um, and I've been able to confirm with someone with his family, um, you know, as a teenager, and he did have you know outbursts, violent outbursts, but they were never like you know fatal or as violent as what happened with his you know with his wife and his son. Mm-hmm. But you know, it, it probably built up over the years, especially if he hadn't been treated. Yeah, and. I don't think he had ever been treated prior to killing them in 71. And mm. At the time, he would have been like 25, 26 when, when he killed his right. wife and son. Right. So he, get, so he tries to cover up the murder that he committed against his wife and, and son, tries to say it happened while he was at work. Obviously, they eventually investigators see through that. And then his uh, defense team or lawyer, who, you know, it's usually, as you know, it's usually more than one. Maybe only one lawyer shows up in court, but it's usually a, people behind, a lot of people behind the scenes working on it. They come up with the idea of the insanity for defense, which, as you and I have talked about, Julian, here in the 21st century, yeah, I, I just don't know if the public even really takes that kind of defense seriously anymore. You know, that's almost, you know, I think most people who try to do that are found guilty. It's just, no, you're not insane. You're going to, no, you knew exactly what you were doing. Whereas it seemed it did work here to the point that not only did he not have to go to jail or anything, but he got put in a facility which wasn't anywhere close to what a a, a jail is. And although uh, it seems maybe in the beginning he had to stay in this facility, but at some point... He worked himself up to the fact that he just had a curfew. He could go out and do whatever he wanted as long as he was back by curfew. And this was a guy who killed his wife and son. Yeah. In the first facility in Mid-Hudson, it's, I think, now referred to as Madawan, uh, it was, like, locked down. You know, he couldn't do anything. You know, it was, like, kind of like a prison. And when they transferred him to, to Creedmoor, you know... It's like one of those, you know, like bureaucratic things, but it's like, you know, no, nobody's checking to see, like, how secure this facility is. They're just like, this is where he goes because it's close to the courthouse, you know. And over time, you know, he, he was a very manipulative person, um, and he was, he, he, he was very different from the other patients in the facility because when he was not having a violent psychotic episode he was high functioning like he Mm. seemed like a regular guy okay you know so he presented like one and for the most part he acted like one uh you know like you know that he is that like he couldn't take care of himself and he couldn't function it's just you know stressors and things you know and anxiety i think just he would have like these you know uh I don't know if they're panic attacks or whatever they were, you know, but, but mm-hmm. you know, or just violent psychotic breakdowns, but, you know, and they didn't happen often, you know, uh, but I mean, often enough that no, nobody wants that, you know, 
But I guess what we're saying, we just want to stay on the topic here, Join, is that at some point, though, uh, it just became the fact that he could come and go from that facility as he wanted as long as he was back by a certain time every night. Yeah, my, my point was that over time, I think he started to gain the trust of the people at the facility because he was manipulative. Mm-hmm. And, you know, he could, he could come and go. And, you know, mm-hmm. um, I mean, he would go to see movies. He would go to baseball games. I mean, he would just be able to wander around New York City yeah. until his curfew, like as if he were a, a regular citizen, even though he had committed those right and we should stay uh, the listeners should know the way you know this is you've actually spoken to an employee at the facility who worked there at the time that Richard was there yeah yeah mm-hmm. uh, he and I have become really uh, really good friends he mm-hmm. um, I ended up meeting him on on web sleuths of all places mm-hmm. uh, he he saw that someone had made a post about Judy and Richard and, and he wrote something uh, and then I got in contact with him and we started talking, and it turns out he became a judge in, uh, in upstate New York, and we, we became really good friends, and he's he, one of the only people that I've ever met that knew Richard during this time period, wow. you know, uh, because his, you know, his, his parents would go visit him in the hospital because they lived 15 minutes from Creedmoor. His sister, she moved away, and so this guy, you know, worked in the same unit that Richard was in. He saw Richard every like every day at work, wow. yeah, you know, and and they had mul- you know to the point where they had multiple long conversations, you know, because because like I said, you know, Richard could have those conversations. He was he, he could function to a, to a mm-hmm. to an extent, you know. But, yeah, we're just not gonna, we're not going to give him too much leeway here, uh, Julian. I, I I don't know if these uh, I don't know if he was psychotic or not. It just sounds to me like he was a guy who couldn't control his temper. But that's what it sounds like to me. But we should say one uh, one more thing though. If if everybody's not outraged that he got away, you know, he tried the insanity defense and it worked to the point where he was in a facility where he could come and go as he wanted. Uh, tell the listeners what happened to his his wife's life insurance money. Yes, so uh, because he was declared insane at the time, and there, there, are, there are laws that prevent this now, but at the time, um, he was able to collect her life, her life insurance uh, because she died. And since he was innocent, he, was, he wasn't responsible, so he was awarded two-thirds of that money, and her family was awarded one-third of that money. That and, is crazy. Yeah, and I mean, the, the total amount was equivalent to like seventy five thousand dollars um, today. Okay. You know, but back, back back then it was like he got eleven thousand, mm. and her family had like six. All and right. So yeah, he but... had, yeah, he had a, a substantial chunk of money. At, I, when he was awarded that money, I, I have no idea. Like, I mean, he didn't have it with him in the hospital, so. Right, that's a, we'll get into that here in a little bit. So we're going back to when we were talking about Judith and what she was doing for money. Maybe she was getting money from Richard from the life insurance policy that his wife had. Possible. Yeah. It is possible. Okay, so for, so for everybody out there, and like Julian said, maybe the laws have changed since then. But we always hear about, well, a killer can't get the life insurance of a person. Uh, you know, husband kills the wife. He can't get the life insurance money if he's found guilty. Not necessarily true, which is 
completely outrageous. Okay. Um, do we, so is this person you've gotten to know very well? He's the person who's given you the circumstances that, uh, of, I guess what we would call Richard's escape that just one day Richard didn't come back. Yeah. Uh, at that, at that time he had transferred to, uh, of like the build, like the, the unit next door, like the, the next building. So, you know, he hadn't, he wasn't seeing Richard as, as often, uh, but he was told, you know, I'm sure news spread fast throughout the facility because it was a campus that had multiple buildings. It was a very large campus. I mean, now it's all dilapidated and maybe there's one or two buildings there. But at the time, there was many buildings. And so he had heard, he had, he had heard about it. He was like, and he had told me he had reflected on a lot of the conversations that they had had in the past. And he was just like, he actually ran away. What the heck? Huh. You know? And so yeah, being... And conversations about those kind of things over the years. Right. And this is the reason everybody's wondering why Richard's disappearance was in the newspaper is because on from April 21st of 1977 is because he was locally known for being the murderer of his wife and his uh, and of his uh, child, and he escaped. That's why it immediately went to the newspaper because everybody's like, this killer's out on the loose. Yeah. Right. And, and yeah, yeah. He's out of the loose. He, he doesn't come back, and you know, and my cousin goes with him. Right. Okay. So, but you did tell me though that there could have been some sort of timing because uh, of this. Because was Richard's detention, if we, we can even call that, uh, the detention situation was going to change. Uh, you had told me about that. What does that mean? Yeah. So after a time. Once it was brought to like the judge's attention and district attorney's attention that Richard was a little bit uh, able to come and go as he pleased, and you know, it, once they heard about this, it they were you know obviously disturbed and they were like, nope, this is not obviously not working anymore. You know, your case is his case has already been you know whatever tried, so he can go back to the other facility now. You know, so I mean, I don't even know why he stayed. stayed and, and now that I think about it, I haven't thought about this until now. I don't even know why he stayed in Greenwood that many years. Mm-hmm. He could have been sent back, obviously, after the trial. But, you know, they were going to send him back to Mid Hudson Psychiatric Facility, which was locked down, couldn't go nowhere. And mm-hmm. some, but somebody, somebody must have told him, like, you know, because mm-hmm. nobody was going to warn him about that ahead of time. So, you know, okay. they, I, I'm sure they like just show up one day and just drag him and bring him upstate. They had to arrange it. So, um, they, you know, law enforcement must have discussed it with some people in the hospital and Richard found out somehow. So he mm-hmm. started to, he had some time to plan and figure out what, what he was going to do and where he was going to go. Right. So this is what, so we're saying, what we're saying is this disappearance uh, you know, April 21st of 1977 of him, he might've been the motivating factor in this because his situation was going to change. He wasn't going to get the come and go. He was going to get locked down again. Granted, it's not technically a jail, but he was going to be losing some of his freedom. And he thought, well, this is the best chance for me to get out of here right now. Yeah. Okay. And we have to remember he had all that money with him, um, that he surely wasn't spending because he was living in a facility being paid by the taxpayers. Um, 
All right, so we can think about that. And then, of course, Judy goes missing around the same time. And as you've already stated in uh, earlier, that in uh, one of your family's diaries, by five days later, the 26th of April, one of your family members was already writing, yeah, Judith has gone with Richard, right? Yeah. So somebody put this together uh, pretty quickly. So let's move on to this. The FBI... Uh, got involved. They actually went and questioned your family. What, what do you know about any of that? Well, let me let me say this about the 26th. When they when my family, this is why they were angry. When, when my family knew she ran off with him, they didn't know about his past. Though. Yeah, right. They just knew he right. Had been a patient. Yeah. And then, um, and then in mid-May, uh, I don't have an exact date, but somewhere between the 15th and the 18th, the FBI shows up at my grandmother's house. And explains the situation. Oh, okay, well, so you know, she, you know, she went missing, but this is what he was in the facility for. He had killed the, um, you oh, know, my. Uh, his oh, my. wife and his child, and like it, the whole situation kind of switched from like, like I, you know, I can't even really imagine like. No, I can't like, either. Yeah, like anger to horror. Yeah. <laughs> right. You know, and sure. not knowing whether or not to to what extent Judy knew that, you know, like that's that, that's even more kind of scary. You know, um, you know, he was at least eleven years older than her to begin with, mm. and you know, and, and now, you know, uh, it happened and served, you know, to go with him, right? Um. Suddenly, yeah, they're then, suddenly they're worried she might be his third victim. Yeah, right. um, I I'm still trying to figure out if that's, if that's the case to this day. You yeah, know, uh, yeah. You know, I, I I worry that that's uh, what might have happened. You know, right. And, but you know, after the FBI came to speak to my family, my family didn't really have much information to give them, and uh, unbelievably. Uh, since May of '77, there, there is law, law enforcement has not contacted like anybody in my family or hmm. Richard's family. Like they kind of, like they were they were investigating, looking for him, but even like you know decades later, like they ever came back to like you know kind of relook at the investigation or anything like that. And I, I can't say why because I I've pointed to those files, but I haven't gotten them yet. <laughs> right. But right. at some point, it looks like they kind of moved on, you know? Mm -hmm. So, being that it's a, just, a, just uh, maybe something that's going through the audience's mind, uh, he got this money. Could uh, It doesn't seem like the FBI was able to you know, track down a bank account that he might have had, you know, get a warrant to check the bank records. No, nothing that you've ever heard of anything like that at the time in 77 or even since? I'm sure they've tried a number of things, but I, I'm I'm also pretty sure he was prepared. Like you know, he yeah, probably had right. substantial amount of cash on him, so he didn't have to, you know, uh, interact with any of these these mm. banks, you know. And it, it you know, I wasn't around in the '70s, but it's been pointed mm. out to me also that doing things like changing your social or changing your name was Could a lot easier. Sure. And also, you know taking a drive up to Canada and getting across the border, like, you didn't necessarily even need, like, an ID. No. 
A lot easier to do that back then than it is now. In fact, you need a passport to get into Canada now. All right, so they I... so so they take off. Uh, of course, your family then d discovers who Richard really is and become horrified by this. Um, in any of those conversations that the FBI had, once again, I realize you were not there, but anybody who's been able to pass this along, did the FBI ever say, well, we think they might have gone to California. We think that they might have gone to Mexico. Any, did the FBI seem to have any idea at all where they were to even look? If they did, they never, they never told anybody. Never said anything. The okay. only thing I could, I could find is some, something in one of the papers that said that Creedmoor couple months later got the prank well i don't know if it was a prank phone call or actually a phone mm. call from Richard, but saying that he was in you know saying that he was in california huh ha, 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 you know okay could have been, been, been him maybe might have been i mean we talk a lot about prank calls and things like that on unfound but that might be one in which it might actually be true um, given that you've been working on this for over 10 years now, Julian, have you tried to, to uh, get the paperwork from the FBI, file a FOIA with the FBI regarding all of this and let the listeners, and we're going to, we have some other things to talk about, but why don't you let them know how that has gone in trying to get the paperwork from them? Yeah, um, I mean, I'll say, I'll say this, like, you know, I, I've had the file for 10 years, but I've only really been able to work it, like, I want to say it's since like 2020 you know like when i really like started calling all like mm -hmm. i really understood how to navigate everything yeah. you know so um i don't want to make it seem like i avoided these things like 10 years ago and mm -hmm. i still haven't gotten okay um, it, i avoided for the fbi files about a year ago and um i actually didn't hear back it wasn't it wasn't a yes or a, i mean that's better than I know, yeah. but you know, I just you know I just I just I just don't want to hear one of two things. You know, mm. we don't have them. Yeah. Just they disappeared, or you know, it's open and active investigation, right. and which it, which it obviously isn't. All right. So just to be clear on this, you have tried you have tried to get the files from the FBI, going through official channels, filling out the paperwork, sending it to them. And you just have never heard anything back from them? No, not yet. Okay. I mean, I'm, I mean, I'm going to just, um, you know, mm. I guess I'll, you know, keep sending in uh, the, their application until I at least get an answer. Mm. But, but I'm also able to, you know, like, they're, they're in Manhattan. So, I mean, one of these, I, I'm, one of these days, I'm just going to walk into their office and be like, all right, right. I'm going to talk Right. Yeah, well, yeah. it's probably about that time. If you really did this a year ago, it's probably time to do that. I mean, uh, yeah, I will tell you, the listeners may have forgotten about this, but some years ago I did a FOIA for some paperwork uh, from the FBI. I didn't get it uh, for reasons that uh, the I was actually trying to get this paperwork from somebody else, that somebody else had produced made the information. The FBI collected it, never came to, gave it back. And so I was trying to be the person to get that back. And this person, uh, due to some fear reasons, will not sign off on all of this. But I will tell you this, in my dealings with the FBI, trying to get paperwork from them, uh, they're very cordial and always got back to me very quickly. Um, so 
you might want to, uh, the people that I dealt with, even though eventually I did not get the paperwork, at least not yet, um, you, might, you know, they always got back to me very promptly. So I think you might want to try that again, you know, very soon. Yeah. You know, uh, and the reason why I, I'm doing it actually is, you know, mm. the FBI has his, his case as a fugitive. Like, they don't, yeah. have, they don't have duty as a missing person. No, like, no, right. So, you right. know. But the NYPD does have her as a, as a missing person, mm. like cold case, but that wasn't open until like 2010. And my interactions with their missing persons unit, you know, I mean, they would much be they would be able to FOIA those much much easier than I could. Yeah. Okay. And I pointed that out to the, the detective, you know, that that is assigned to Judy's case and. He, uh, you know, he's just, he's, uh, he just blows me off, really, you know. Uh, he'll, yes, he'll yes me to death, but then not do anything. So, you know, I, I wish I could get to a point where, like, this, going into this, I had this very, my, my, my dad is retired in my PD. So I went into this with a very positive outlook. Uh-huh. Like, I'll, I'll get all this stuff in my family, I'll pull this stuff together, the circumstantial stuff, and I'll say, here, like, here's what I, here's what I have, everything I have, and, you know, it might help you, like, kind of get an idea of where to start, you know, um, and, you know, when I told him I had things to give him, uh, you know, he, he wasn't really interested. No. Uh, okay, that's, and, that's common. <laughs> that's unfortunately common. Okay, yeah. let's move, uh, Julian, let's move on to this. Now, Judy, though, did make a phone call to uh, uh, to her family in Kansas at some point, maybe even after the disappearance date, uh, when was it made, and what did you know? What did she say? What is this? Okay, she made a call to her sister in New York, the only the only sister that the only one of her immediate family that was still in New York after her family left, and that was the sister who went to the facility to meet Richard for the first time, like. And you know, she called her and just said it was a good. It was a few weeks later. You know, she couldn't give me an exact date, but she said you know, like three, four weeks, a couple of weeks. And she said to you know, and and for a long time, I was trying to figure out like what was said on this call, and and if anything, could I get anything out of it? But basically, all, all Judy said is like, I'm okay. You know, don't don't worry about me. I'm okay. You know, and you know. Her just to try to figure out, you know, figure out where she was, you know, tell me where you are or what's going on. And, you know, Judy just ended the call very quickly, you know. Um, That was only a few weeks later, you know. It wasn't, you know, and and since then there's been nothing. Nothing. Okay. Nothing. Now, you have had a chance. Uh, Of course, you've talked to a bunch of people in your family. In fact, you've talked to a person who worked at the facility tracking this person down, which I think is spectacular. But you actually have gotten to speak to the sister of Richard Riesenberg, and actually quite recently, um, we don't have to get into her name or anything, um, but um, what did she say about back then, you know, when she found out that her brother went missing? You know, let's get the other side of this now, from the Riesenberg uh, side of things. What did, what has the sister told you? Um, The sister, she... um she went into social work and she had just, you know, 
had killed his family in 71. She had just graduated and was moving to Massachusetts anyway. So she was kind of distancing herself from the situation because obviously very, very disturbing, not the kind of family <laughs> dynamic that you want, you know, around. And so, you know, when I called her, she was very helpful and she was very, she was very kind. And, you know, it took me a while to, to, you know, kind of must, muster up the, the courage to call her because, you know, I didn't know, you know, what, how, how it would go, you know? Right. You never know. That's um, true. Yeah. And so she, she had, to, she was very helpful and she just said, you know, at the time, uh, I moved, I, I moved away as fast as I could and I, and I would go visit my parents, but I stayed away because I wanted nothing to do with him. Like, you know, um, it was, you know, she, you know, she was basically telling me it was difficult enough growing up with him, but then at, like after he killed Dan and Andrew, that was the final straw. She was done, you know, mm-hmm. and you know, she moved to Massachusetts and I think has been there for, for like since then, you know, and mm-hmm. cause that's where she still is now. And she had said to me that, um, when she, when he went missing, you know, she was, she had stressed to her parents to not tell him where I live. If you, if you hear from him, if you see him, do not tell him where, uh, where I live. By no means, I do not want him coming up here and appearing at my door. Like, she was just horrified and afraid and mm. it didn't, that just didn't want him around, you know. And, and his parents, understandably, I think, tried to deal with it as best as they could. I think the dad was, you know, a little bit more like this is still my son so you know he, he would visit him in the hospital a lot uh and the, and the mother was kind of torn you know uh she she was devastated but at the same time she you know she wasn't cutting off contact completely and you know so i think it made things complicated for for their family at the time mm. yeah, everyone, everyone had different feelings about it you know and you know um and then yeah, and then, and then, you know, Linda just, um, his sister just, his sister just decided that she was, you know, going to live her own life and, and, and not worry about that. And, you know, mm-hmm. not to pass forward a little bit, but, you know, eventually when her mother was ill, she moved, she moved with her to Massachusetts. And, what, after, when, you know, when she passed, she did not even put her mother obituary out there because she didn't she didn't want to risk wow. Richard showing up. Wow. I mean that's how. Right. Yeah, she just wanted nothing to do with with, with wow. him, and you know, uh, I, who, mm. who could blame her? You know. Right. I, I, yeah, I, she might be. Yeah, who knows? Yeah, you just have a, a brother who is a killer and killed uh, the two people they're supposed to be most important in his life. Who knows who he might kill next? Right? Yeah. You know, and of I course, mean, that's I, the fear with Judy, you know, being Judy's, Judy's still missing, that's the fear with that as well. Yeah. Um, is that, I mean, given the stressors of the situation, mm. like running from the FBI, being a fugitive, uh, having to figure out where to live, like all those factors, I, you know, I don't think it would have been very good for his mental health. <laughs> 
All right. And, uh, just being able to handle that pressure and, you know, and, right. and I mean, I have been able to see my, initially my thoughts were that like, also what about his medication? Like suddenly sure. he stops taking it and right. he's running around. But right. I found out that he was not on medication at the time. So there would have been no withdrawal or, or side effects or anything that would have happened as, um, Right, and which which goes back to my idea that I'm not sure this guy had any psychi- psych- psychology or psychological problems at all. I think he was just a guy who couldn't handle his temper, and when you know things didn't go the way he wanted, he killed people. You know that's that's not a psychological condition. That's just a bad person. So being that he wasn't on any medication, you know, some years after he killed his wife and son, would tell me that. You know, maybe he didn't have an issue at all, and, and he pulled off this uh, a little magic act in court, uh, and you know, with his lawyer's help, I guess. Um, let me ask you this: uh, in speaking to uh, his sister, did she ever say maybe she thought that Richard might be in her life, maybe just secret? Any? Did she ever feel like somebody might be following her? Did she ever get any weird phone call hang-ups and things like that? Anything like that ever come up when you spoke to her? <clears throat> well, she had told me that um, at, at some point, a number of years later, uh, I want to say late, like late 94, early 95, she got a call from her mother and her mother said to her, you know, Richard's attorney just called me and said that she got a call from, that, uh, that he got a call from him and, huh. and and something about you know him thinking about coming back to New York, and you know, well. and his sister, but yeah, was a little bit, you know, she wasn't very happy to happy to hear that, but he ended up not coming back anyway. You know, but she remembers mm-hmm. that being around the ninety four ninety five period. Um, she said because of things that were going on at the time. You know, she. And she, so, that, so, so, I mean, he may have, you know, may have called them, uh, his attorney at that point mm-hmm. and, you know, expressed like some interest in like what would happen if I came back yeah. legally and, you know, and to pass a message along to his mother, because, you know, I would imagine there's a high level of paranoia uh, of, of, you know, like if the FBI's looking for you. Right. Like, of course. You know, you know, and at that time in the nineties, I mean, you know, there, uh, I think it was star sixty nine. <laughs> right, you could, yeah, right. So what we're saying is, all right. So we're gonna, and that's gonna lead us right into talking about our Richard's lawyer because you just tried calling him recently. But what we're saying here, seemingly, that eighteen years after Judy and Richard disappeared, seemingly together in April, once again, of April of nineteen seventy seven. Sometime around the OJ stuff, which was 94-95, Richard actually called the lawyer that he had way back in the 1970s. Yeah, and and then then eventually he had said to the attorney, you know, Mm -hmm. he had decided because of the publicity of the OJ trial and how, Mm -hmm. like, I guess him watching it, like, he was like, oh, you know, like, you know, people aren't very, uh, uh, really know how he, how he put it, but like, you know, his viewpoint was kind of like, people aren't very forgiving. Like if you 
do those kind of things, obviously. So, you know, I don't think it's a good idea to come back, you know. Okay. And that's what kind of spooked him. And that's why, you know, his sister had remembered that it was that, that period of time, you know, like, because, you know, she had something to reference. Uh, but when I tried to call, um, I found that his attorney is still alive. Yeah. Tell, yeah, tell the listeners, you, you contacted him, and what happened? <laughs> I contacted him, and I, you know, I didn't even really get to interview him. He kind of just hung up on me uh, very, very quickly. He just said, no, thank you, click, you know, and, uh, you know, I, you know, I pulled, I pulled back the second time immediately, because generally, if you hang up on a telemarketer, like, they're not really allowed to call you multiple times. Mm-hmm. So I, I wanted to like let him know like I wasn't one. And then I sent him a short text message basically saying like you know, like here's why I'm calling, you know, without without like, you know, divulging everything. But he never got back to me. So I asked another one of one of my uh you know, allies in the uh investigative true crime true crime community, you know, uh you know, could you try this out for me? You know, and and you know, one thing uh, that that we like to do sometimes is like, you know, if they don't want to talk to a man, maybe they want to talk to a woman. You know, and so she tried, and he was he was nice as pie to her. Wow. Okay, well that's yeah. nice. Now we should make something clear though for the for the listeners. When you called him, you never even got to say the name Richard Riesenberg, correct? No. no, you. So we have to understand that the reason that he hung up on hung up on you is not necessarily because you mentioned Richard Riesenberg. You didn't want to talk about that. He just hung up you on you for whatever reason. Yeah, I mean, I just still mm. thought it was strange when I tried to go back again, and I also texted yeah. in more detail. You know, he still didn't try okay. to reach out, out to me like this. If you know, I figured if he cared to talk about it, like. He would have just called me back and been like, oh, sorry, I thought you were a telemarketer or something yeah. like that. But, All right, so let's, move, so let's move on. So your friend, though, called him, and they did talk. What was the conversation? You know, um, he, 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 you know, basically he didn't, he didn't really have much that he had to say or, or remembered about it. But he said he remembers getting a call at some point from Richard saying, saying, all, all the stuff that he wanted to come back, but mm-hmm. he didn't have a time frame for it. Um, I mean, he's 84 now, and this was you know, 30 years ago. For 30 years, yeah, well, about 30 years ago. So yeah, you know, I mean, supposedly 30 years ago. Um, so you know, he, he wasn't sure if it happened closer to, to 77 or 94. He had no clue. Okay, you know, so I, at this point, I'm I'm hoping maybe. He has some records, and he'll get back to my friend. Like maybe he wrote it down somewhere, you know, in, in his diary. Right, and we. So what we're saying here is really we're just going by Richard's mother, who then contacted his sister, saying that that's the way she remembered it. Of course, Richard's mother is deceased now, but at the time, the way the sister remembers it, it was in that 1994-95 time frame, somewhere in there. Yeah, and uh, you know, I, I would imagine that this would stick out in her mind very vividly because she was very yeah, afraid of him. I agree with you. And, and for good and for good reason. You know, mm-hmm. I so you know, just and that, that happened just very very recently, you know, a couple weeks ago. Yeah. And so so learning learning that, that 
that, 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 that was a possibility really changed a lot of how I viewed this case, you know, because, sure. um, you know, previously, if I, if I had told you, like, what my opinion was of what happened, like, or what I think might have happened, mm. it's, it's very different now. <laughs> okay. And uh, being that we're talking about just a few weeks ago, the listeners should know we're doing this interview on March 5th of 2023. Uh, when your friend did get to talk to uh, this lawyer, uh, did the lawyer ever say what, you know, be privileged, but uh, did he ever tell Richard, you know, hey, Richard, you shouldn't have run away in the first place, or did he advise Richard to come back and face justice? Did, they even, did the two of them even get into that in the conversation or not? The only thing that that they communicated against, he had said to Richard is like, "Don't tell me where you are because I then I'm like basically sort of obligated to report it. So just don't give me any information. I don't want to know anything. Just ask me what you want to ask me, and then mm, <laughs> you know, okay, we'll do it together. All right, because yeah. once again, even though there's privilege, there is certainly not privilege if it's taking part in a crime. And if a lawyer happens to know where the client is and the client is on the run from the law, uh, then that could get into the lawyer, he himself or herself could get into some legal issues. So that's why a lawyer would say something like that. I get that. Now, interestingly, if we want to talk about this, you actually called the lawyer. When the lawyer hung up on you, you actually called the lawyer's son. And how did that go? <laughs> I called the lawyer's son in Colorado, who also was, is an attorney. And, and he actually heard, he, he, he let me talk for like a minute. He heard my, my whole, my whole thing about missing mm-hmm. and this, and it happened in 77. And, you know, and I was basically asking him, you know, is there any way that maybe you can appeal to your father to speak to me, you know? Um, and his only response was, you know, well, I was born in 66, so I was 11 in 77. So... I can't really help you. Sorry. Anyhow, no. Okay. All right. So you got hung up twice by two people in the same family. Okay. All right. In the same, the same 15 minutes span. Yeah, in 15 minutes. That's the way to get it done, Julian. Um, all right. So you're, you're working on this. And, of course, these uh, conversations were just uh, recently. Uh, let's move on to this. So this is uh, that's Richard Riesenberg. So we talked about Judy, and we talked about the guy that she seemingly went I guess, on the run with, and there's been no sign of them since. And so, if we're to believe this lawyer, it seems at least Richard was alive 18 years after uh, they went on the run. But I'm also guessing then, Julian, during that conversation, that Judy's name ever, never came up when the, the, the two of them talked in 1994 or 95. It never came up, but it came up that he was with someone, yeah. a woman. But he okay. didn't. He didn't say who. Okay. Um, I was just hoping, at the least, when I was talking to the, that, you know, when my friend was talking to the attorney, that he at least knew or remembered, like, who was he with, you know? But um, he didn't even recall that there was a girl that went missing with him. Mm-hmm. You know, so that was. Yeah. It certainly I, would I be nice, Julian, if now that the lawyer knows what these calls were for, it'd be nice if, being that you're the one who's been working on this, that you could call him back and have a deeper conversation. I'm hoping that can happen. Yeah, I mean, you know, 
I, I, I would like to. Um, mm-hmm. I, I just, I, I wouldn't, but I wouldn't be surprised based on what he said already that he doesn't, you know, he doesn't really have much to help me with, okay. you know, unless he has documents, then, then that might be helpful just, just to say, oh, okay, it's around or about this date. You know, but what, you know, one thing I wanted to say about what you were talking about with, um, you know, attorney client privilege, but also not being able to aid them in the commission of a crime, you know, even though he, Richard didn't say where he was, I mean, I would imagine that the attorney was obligated to uh, call, you know, the the authorities to let them know that he's got a call from Yeah, his you'd think. Yeah, you'd think. Years before. Right, you'd hope. I, I don't know if that ever happened. He may have done that, but, but you know. And, you know, that may be in the files somewhere, but I don't, I don't know if he, if he ever did that. And he didn't indicate that he remembered doing that, so. Right, and we also might visualize, depending on how badly the FBI wanted to uh, track down Richard Riesenberg, they might have gotten a, a phone tap for the lawyer's phone back in 77, and Richard might have waited all these years thinking, well, surely his phone's not tapped at this point. I mean, we might be open to that as well. That might have been legal back then. Uh, yeah. Yeah, actually, um, I think that's why he did call the attorney and not his mother, for instance. Yeah. Because my family has said that they think they were, they had their phones tapped at some point because it was a little more obvious back then. Like, okay. when, when your phone was tapped, there would be that, you know, that clicking. And that was going on for a while. And I would imagine they did the same to his family if they had tapped my family, some of my family's phones. Yeah. Um. And, you know, it seems like, you know, Richard had enough forethought to, to be like, well, it's probably not a good idea if I call any of them. So, you know, if I call the attorney and he decides he's going to tell somebody still, it's going to be a little bit harder to, you know, get, get the attorney's phone records, you know, than mm-hmm. my mom's. You know, so, you know, he still was, if mm-hmm. that call happened, he was still operating from a very cautious place. Yeah, he's going to be at least... Yeah, he's going to be cautious. Now, we should say one more thing. Uh, your understanding was that Richard and his father were close. The mother and the sister, it seems, like once he ended up killing his wife and child, kind of distanced themselves, but the father still kind of remained close to Richard? The, the father did. Um, I was told by the orderly that worked at, um, at Creedmoor that mm-hmm. knew Richard that the father would come visit you know, multiple times a week. I mean, their, their, their house... It was like about a fifteen minute drive from the hospital mm-hmm. that he was staying at, so it was clo- it was close by, uh, just by coincidence, mm-hmm. actually. But yeah. and, and and the mother and you know the mother, she you know she did try to you know participate, but I just I think she was torn. You yeah, know, she was somewhere in between, like the, the sister and the dad. You know, whereas the sister was just like no, you know, mm-hmm. um, but. Right. But I, I, I think ultimately, you know, ultimately, the dad was there often, you know. Uh, so if, you know, if, when we were talking about the money before, uh, if anybody, you know, held on to the money for him, you know, which wasn't illegal, it would have been his dad. Yeah, it could have been know? his father, right? That's right. And, you know, and if he wanted, you know, if he wanted money to go out and do things, he obviously couldn't go to, a, like, a bank himself, uh, you know, but, well, I mean, maybe he could while he was in the hospital. I don't, I don't think he had a bank account. But, yeah, but, the money yeah, still uh, is, yeah. the money still seems to be the best, you know, of course it's, you know, almost 50 years now, but, um, you know, the money angle, this still seems to be maybe the best choice 
you know, even all these years later. You know, that money, you know, I don't really believe that he, you know, if he got however much money was, he got it all in cash and was lugging it all around. I mean, I mean, that just seems a little outrageous to me. But, okay, let's move on to this. Uh, how has your family thought about you uh, taking this on, uh, Julian? You know, I, they've all been very, they've all thanked me. I haven't had anybody really say anything, you know, negative to me or, or not want me to. Yeah. You know, um, it has been pointed out to me more than once, and I have thought about this in a sense, um, that no matter how, no matter what happened, you know, like if I find out the truth of what, of what happened between them, whether or not Judy's alive still, or she's not, it's not a happy ending, you know, uh, because, and I, and I never had thought about that previously in the sense that, you know, if if she had willingly just, you know, left for all this time, I mean, That kind of stinks. <laughs> right. That's right. Right. In fact, we're not even sure that Judith even knew that Richard had killed two people, right? We're not, we don't even know she knew that. Yeah. We're not, you know, um, mm-hmm. we're not, yeah, we don't, I don't even know to what extent. I mean, she had to know he was in the hospital for some reason, but like, I mean, how, it, it, how he could keep that the secret the whole time. I, I don't, I don't know. So, and I, I doubt she was going back to the archives in 71 newspapers <laughs> no probably not uh, but on the other hand not to be, take this the but we on the other hand know about women who become fast fascinated with men on death row and end up marrying them too so you know maybe even if she knew i'm not here to speak poorly of her but we know this is a thing as well women becoming infatuated with men who are in jail i don't i don't know why that is but it, you know it certainly does exist uh does your family have uh DNA in a database like NamUs or something in case remains were happening to be found somewhere? Yep. Um, my family and his family. Um, okay. I had, I actually, I didn't know that his sister had done that, um, but we're, we're, we're all, we've uploaded, we've opted into GenMatch. Um, the DNA has, from my side of the family, has been submitted to NamUs because mm-hmm. uh, Judy's uh, has her own NamUs profile. Uh, um, Rich obviously doesn't because he's a fugitive. But, um, so yeah, we have our, our DNA with like both really. And there's never been any hits or anything. Okay. We have to remember that Richard, Judith was 19 in 77. Richard was 31. So she would be 65 and he would be 77 now. Yeah. You know, so the, uh, so it's been a while, I guess this t- statistically they, well, he'd be a little older than the average male, that a ma- average lifespan of a male in the United States. She would still be well under it. Uh, so maybe everybody has to figure that into, your, uh, into their calculations as to whether Richard and Judy are still alive or they're both deceased or what has happened there. And as Julian has already stated earlier, we have to remember this 1970s may be easier to, for somebody to change his or her uh, ID back then and everything than it would be here in the 21st century. Uh, Julian, do you have a Facebook page or anything like that set up for the work that you're doing regarding the, the disappearance of your cousin, Judy Brown? Yes, I do. Um, it's, uh, 
It's called uh, Judas Ann Brown Missing, Vanished with a Killer. Wow. Okay. And um, so I guess you are the one that manages it. You're the administrator? Yep. Okay, excellent. I have, I have, some, I have some other people that help me uh, administrate it, but I make mm-hmm. all the posts and, uh, you know, and I had, you know, I, I started making Instagram and other things yeah, attached to good. it that I can get as social media as possible, you know. Okay. Julian, any final words before we complete this interview? No, no, I don't. I can't really talk about a lot. I, I, I okay. Well, I, I know what I want to say is that, you know, it's for a long time. This, and you should know, the listeners should know that uh, Julian first came to me. Uh, this was not a disappearance, uh, even if I had never even heard of Richard Riesenberg, even though he's a killer, I'd never heard of him before, but certainly have read a lot about him now. But uh, maybe, Julian, you don't know this, but for a long time, there is a particular type of disappearance that unfound is not covered, and I always made a, make a, point of, made a point of bringing it up, and that was the fugitive. Now, I realize Richard is not your family member, and we're here to talk about Judith. She is the uh, innocent one in all of this. But um, Richard Riesenberg is the first disappearance uh, that we've covered where the person is actually what we would out and out call a fugitive uh, from justice. Although we've covered disappearances of people who had warrants out for their arrest and everything, this was certainly uh, a little bit different than that. So this, is a, you know, this has been a long time coming, uh, given that we've covered 280-some disappearances on Unfound Julian. And uh, so I hope you will keep me apprised as you continue to work on this. Uh, it sounds like you've made a lot of progress in, in the time yeah. you've been working on it. And, and you know, that I think part of the advantage I have that um, they're both linked and they're both missing is that working on either side of their case will sort of lead me to one or the other. Yeah. You know, it, you know, uh, in some in some sense, unless you know they, they parted at some point, you know. So that's why I, I can kind of work it from from both angles, and mm-hmm. um, you know, I was I was going to say that you know it's it just it, it's been I've been networking a lot um, with lots of people and in, in the true crime community, and it's there have been a lot of people who just. Uh, volunteered to help me with various things. Uh, you know, people such as yourself that have, who have you know, entered, like wanted to talk about this this story. And, yeah. You know, and you know, prior prior to 2020, 2021, No, I'm sorry. Prior to twenty twenty two, uh, there was no media for my cousin ever. You know, um, when I, you know, when I tried to figure out if the if if the NYPD had any anything in their files about my custom missing person case, I can't, I, I can't find, I can't have, find any evidence that they have anything because whenever I've called them, you know, in the past, I, I've been asked, well, what's your social again? You know, so yeah. it's leaving me with much hope for, you know, that, you know, but, um, you know, like, so, I, I, you know, I've been, I've built, been building on it for some time, but it's, a, it's, you know, like a lot of families are sure I've expressed to you, it's long and like drawn out process and you have to be so patient you know and I can't I can't imagine you know um, like it 
like being directly connected to the situation and it just happening, like re- in recent, you know, recently, and and trying to navigate all this at the same time. Because like right now, like I I'm essentially working. I mean, I, I have some friends helping with some with some things, but I, I'm doing everything myself. And sure. It's it's it's, it's hard because um, I'm not you know I'm not good at everything. You know, like, <laughs> for instance, like social media, I had to like. I had to go back and refresh myself on how to make all these things. Uh-huh. And I'm a very heavy social media user, so. Um, well, well, Julian, I appreciate yeah, Julian. I appreciate you being on this episode of Unfound. Thanks, and uh, thank you for having me. You're welcome. And that was my March fifth, twenty twenty three interview with Julian Quiterio cousin of Judy Brown. I thank him for joining me and all of you on this episode. On Unfound's website, theunfoundpodcast.com, I've posted some articles from the early 1970s regarding Richard's murders of his wife and child. I've also posted an article on how the state of New York eventually changed its laws concerning killers being held at mental health facilities. The article specifically mentions Richard as an example of why the law was changed. Lastly, I've posted a recent letter from the FBI sent to Julian on their attitude toward Richard Riesenberg in 2023. It is interesting. So, what to think about this first-of-its-kind disappearance or disappearances on Unfound? Everybody's first concern should be for Judy. Given that I don't think she was the one who came up with the idea of taking off, we might contemplate whether she willingly went with Richard or got abducted. However, my opinion is that it really doesn't matter. What matters is Richard was a killer, is a killer if he is still alive. And people who kill are the ones who are most likely to kill again. Furthermore, we know that Judy never contacted anybody after April 1977. This could feed into the idea that Richard harmed her. What raises the risk of this outcome is Richard's previous victims weren't a business partner or drinking buddies. He killed his wife and child two victims who would be in the same category as Judy. However, maybe we need to look at this the opposite way. If Richard really did contact his lawyer in 1995 or whenever around that time about coming back to his real life, would he have really done that if he murdered Judy? Because Richard would have to know the very first question he would be asked upon reappearing is, Where's Judy Brown? In fact, maybe we need to be hopeful of this thought. Maybe Judy started her own life away from Richard. Maybe she escaped the killer. If you'd like to read and hear more of what I think about the disappearance of Judy Brown and most of Unfound's disappearances, please sign up at patreon.com forward slash unfound podcast and start partaking in the unfound blog until then i leave the public theorizing up to you and that's the program 
right now while you are in your podcast platform, Spotify, YouTube, iTunes, wherever, give Unfound a five-star review, a thumbs up, whatever that platform allows. I thank you for listening. I'm at Denzel, and you've just finished this episode of Unfound.